Jack Lewis was hired by the CCC. He was an unemployed man, just like my dad, and he qualified for uh, employment in the CCC. And his job was not to dig ditches, but to paint pictures and to be the cultural arts guy because Jack Lewis could play the harmonica, he could play the piano, he was an actor, he, uh, he was in charge of cultural arts for all these four mosquito control camps in Delaware, the CCC. So it was his job to keep the guys entertained at night. And he was a creative, very talented artist. And lucky for Delaware, after the CCC ended and Jack Lewis went off and fought in the Pacific in World War II, he came back and lived in Woodside and in Bridgeville his whole life and painted Hi, this is Stephanie Fowler. And this is Tony Russo. And you're listening to another episode of So What's Your Story? A podcast in which we talk to authors and writers about their writing, their stories behind their stories, the writing process, and any other miscellaneous writing stuff that we decide to talk about. Today on the podcast, we have Carol Saris, a two-time published author. She started her teaching career at Dover High School in 1966 and later became the Assistant Secretary of Education for the state of Delaware. She retired in 2000 from her state position and picked up her pen. As a lifelong Delawarean, her love of the area comes through in her work. In her first novel for young girls, Come Back to Bethany, Carol narrates the history and ecology of Bethany Beach, Delaware, through the eyes of three teenage girls living in different centuries. In her most recent novel, Chickens and Mosquitoes, The Art of Uncertain Times, Carol paints a picture of Delaware during the Great Depression in which the lives of the men of the Civilian Conservation Corps, the budding poultry industry, and the relationships of people surviving those challenging times, namely her parents and the celebrated artist Jack Lewis, are all explored. So welcome to the podcast, Carol. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure having you. Um, One of the first questions I had, because I'm always sort of intrigued by what I call the story behind the story. And I know that when you came to do uh, Chickens and Mosquitoes, um, you know, when you and I were talking about it, there was a scrapbook of your dad's that you found. And that kind of spun off this, you know, really interesting story of all with all these different, you know, early components to it. So I was just wondering if you could kind of tell folks a little bit about how you came to, to this story. Well, when I was little growing up, I heard my parents always talk about the Depression, and they would say terrible times. It was terrible times. And then they would move on and never talk about what terrible times were because nobody likes to talk about terrible times. Right. And uh, fast forward 60 years after I had time to work and grow up and get an education and have a child and get married, um, I uh, found my father's two scrapbooks. And... I was truly amazed at what they held, things that I had no clue that he had ever done, jobs, uh, experiences, time in Philadelphia and New York City, uh, and in mosquito control with the Civilian Conservation Corps. He spent a decade of his life really in the CCC in one form or another. And in Delaware, that meant digging ditches and mosquito control. And so I got interested in Depression Day Delaware. And as I researched the topic, I realized it was more than just mosquitoes. There was a lot about chickens because the poultry industry, the international poultry industry, began in Ocean View, Delaware in 1923 when an Ocean View farm wife named Cecil Steele 
decided that she wasn't going to sell the chicken eggs. She was going to sell the chickens. And she was the first person in the world to mass produce chickens and to think that she could raise them, and which she did. And she became so wealthy that other Sussex County farmers decided we're going to start building chicken houses and we're going to start selling chickens, which they did. And so a whole new industry was founded. And so my book takes people inside the early chicken houses when people didn't know what they were doing because there was no Mount Air, there was no Purdue, there was certainly no Royal Farms, Kentucky Fried Chicken. You couldn't even go in a supermarket and buy a chicken in 1923. You had to go to a farm and convince a farmer to give you a bird or to sell you a bird so you could have it, you know, to eat. Uh, and they didn't want to sell you a bird because they wanted them for the eggs. Sure, makes sense. So I wanted to tell that story. And then as I started to research Depression Day, Delaware, I realized that there was so much else there. There were iconic places that no longer existed, such as Oak Orchard, Riverdale, Rosedale Beach, the camp meeting grounds. And so I really wanted to write a historical novel that would be a Delaware love story. It's based on my parents meeting each other. Uh, and it's certainly it's word for word my father's life because I had letters from the U.S. Army, from the Civilian Conservation Corps, from his colleges to tell his story, which is very typical of, well, re- of resilient hearts. Well, let's, let's, let's take it a piece at a time. Um, let's start with the, the, the chicken houses because that, that amuses everyone all the time. It's, <laughs> it's, it's almost a funny word. Um, how, did you, how, did you come, how did you come across – was this a fact that you came across as part of your research or was this something that you knew and were able to incorporate into your narrative – well, both. You know, I'm a native Delawarean, so I grew up in the in Seaford area with lots of chicken houses. But the industry really started in Ocean View, where I've lived full time for the last decade. I'm president of the Ocean View Historical Society, where we have a replica of Cecil Steele's first chicken house on our historical complex. And I very often impersonate Cecil Steele in the chicken house so <laughs> for school kids. So I'm very familiar with the early chicken houses where there was a coal stove in the middle. Chickens don't like it real cold. They don't like it real hot. So the book tells the story of ice blocks getting drug into the chicken house and really tries to take people back to those early chicken houses, which are nothing like the chicken houses of today. If you go in a Purdue or Mount Air chicken house, first of all, you're not allowed in because they're hermetically sealed there for thousands and thousands of birds, 50,000 right. to 100,000 birds in a single chicken house. That's funny. I took a random guess at what was in it, and I guessed maybe a couple thousand, as I think was, I think, the... No, so they, they pack them in. That's, that's the... Oh, today. Oh, oh yeah. today. Oh, yeah. No. But I, when you came, like, is... Do school kids today are like, oh, today is Cecil Steele Day. Is, is that how you... I, because it's a because it's a foundational fact, as opposed to as opposed to a tangential fact, it's like oh, this is where the chicken industry started. Who 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 told you that? I guess like how did you find out about that? Because it's fascinating to me. I mean, there 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 was like there was like Tuesday you knew where the chicken industry started, but Monday you were totally ignorant of it. Right? That's not something that you come upon slowly. Well, if you live in Ocean View. 
you live with people that are still in the industry. I mean, there's plenty of people. So that's the question. So she was famous enough that you had known that she had started this chicken house. Well, uh, if you're a member of the Ocean View Historical Society, for instance, Cecil and Wilmer Steele's house still exists. On It's the Cafe on 26, right. which is a restaurant. That's where the family lived after they became wealthy and moved from Central Avenue off their chicken farm. Right. Uh, their descendants all live in Ocean View, or many of them do. So that's so, no great secret. No, no. Oh, okay. uh, Ocean that's, View it, it is seems, long. It seems impenetrable to no, me. No, you Marylanders. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you Delawarean people. Well, he's from New Jersey, I'm so. New Jersey. <laughs> Chickens seem impenetrable to me, let alone that they had a the foundation. The Delmarva poultry industry is huge, even here in Maryland. And, right. Uh, uh, it's still the large, the greatest uh, job producer in Delaware. Even though we had the Dupont Company come in, during Briefly. the French Revolution, yeah. actually sure. the chickens are outla- It seems are outlasting the nylon, the Dupont Company. Oh, if wow. you look, so uh, the number of jobs, the number of people employed, and, and is still frankly, greater. chicken is way tastier than nylon. <laughs> <laughs> well, the Dupont Company has moved on to other things besides polymers, you know, but. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, I did tell the story at the beginning of the at the very end of the novel. Mm-hmm. Uh, I tell the story of the beginning of the Dupont plant, the Seaford, and, and the key role that it played in World War II uh, for the war effort uh, internationally. Oh, right. sure, yeah, that's that's for sure. One of the, the other things that you you hit on in the um, pretty heavily in Chickens and Mosquitoes is the artist Jack Lewis. Yes, and I know that uh, when we were working on this book, you actually had a framed original it was unfinished but uh-huh. an, an original jack lewis painting and i know that you worked with his daughter i think it was or? yes uh heather lewis who's a practicing artist in maine is jack lewis's the one of his two children uh, she wrote the introduction for yes. the book and since i brought her father back to life and put words in his mouth she was very involved with the the, the story counting that related to her dad Jack Lewis and my father were lifelong friends. They met in the Civilian Conservation Corps camp, camps in Delaware, particularly Camp 1224 at Lewis. Jack Lewis was hired by the CCC. He was an unemployed man, just like my dad, and he qualified for uh, employment in the CCC. And his job was not to dig ditches, but to paint pictures and to be the cultural arts guy, because Jack Lewis could play the harmonica, he could play the piano, he was an actor, he uh, he was in charge of cultural arts for all these four mosquito control camps in Delaware, the CCC. So it was his job to keep the guys entertained at night. And he was a creative, very talented artist. And lucky for Delaware, after the CCC ended, and Jack Lewis went off and fought in the Pacific in World War II. He came back and lived in Woodside and in Bridgeville his whole life and painted. And if you go to the Delaware legislature and you look up in the House and the Senate, you'll see Jack Lewis paintings all around both legislators, legislative hall in Delaware. And he painted a mural on the side of the market in Bridgeville, and he published seven books of paintings. But for chickens and mosquitoes, each chapter starts with a quote from Jack Lewis's 1940 book, The Delaware Scene. And that was his first book of paintings that he published in 1940. And a lot of the, uh, some of the CCC paintings are in there, but it was paintings from his travels 
in the Depression Day Delaware that ended up in the Delaware scene. So it's a very historic book. They say that the uh, Civilian uh, Conservation Corps was one of the things that helped prepare the young men for World War II, living in living in barracks and things like that. Um, did you? How much? How much did barrack life make it into your book? Quite a bit. I'd say uh, about a third of the scenes take you right inside the CCC camps, either at Redden Forest or in Lewis or up at Fort DuPont. Fort DuPont had a CCC camp uh, near the beginning of the war, and my dad was actually the superintendent wow. of that. So they did you know, marsh work in the marshes. Uh, they built bridges. They built roads. And... Uh, the work that the CCC men did still exists. Shenandoah Drive. Uh, right. It just, it, it, so many of their, even though the camps are gone, the work that they did still survives. Absolutely. Yeah. Those, those are those components that I think, you know, for people in our generation, I yeah. think we, we kind of, you know, our, our generation didn't have those, didn't have a Great Depression. So I think that there is a, you know, when I think about the Civilian Conservation Corps and, and to think that this man was, like, paid to, like, entertain and, you know, do all these sorts of things with, you know, that it, it's kind of a foreign concept. But when you think back, it really did work in terms of that time, that place, that moment. Well, additionally, uh, something that, that I especially think about, I think about all the time because I did, I studied the Great Depression a little bit. Oh. One of the geniuses of the Civilian Conservation Corps is it probably kept us from having... A revolution because we didn't have as you as the depression went through Europe, you had a lot of young guys standing around being hungry, and uh, FDR and Congress said, you know what, why don't we, why don't we put them to work? Like anything, like let's not have them all gather together to complain about how hungry they are. Right. Let's let's get them let's get them some shovels. Let's there's plenty of work to be done. You know, um, from from Teddy Roosevelt's whole you know national park system. They're like let's 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 put these guys to work so that we're putting a little bit of money back in the economy and also we don't have angry young men hanging around. Well, and and the reason the CCC worked was that the men were paid $30 a month. They didn't keep that money. 25 of that was sent home to their families. So even though there was about 3 million men in the CCC, it reached probably 15 million people because the money, most of the money was sent home to needy families. That's the, the case. And get pumped right back into the economy. Right. Now, if you were white, you were well served. If you were African American, Native American, Hispanic American, they had very few camps for, for because it was a segregated society. Yeah. So they, those populations were underserved. But if you were white, unemployed, single, you had to be single. Uh, you had to be poor. And you, my dad had six brothers and sisters. So if you came from a big family, you were even better qualified. But the infrastructure work that the CCC men did, not just in Delaware, to control mosquitoes, because this is something the book touched on. Mosquitoes and the Delmarva Peninsula were a plague. We, Unless we controlled our mosquitoes, we would never have had the development that we've had. There yeah. was a record of garden parties in Lewis and Rehoboth with people with newsprint tied around their ankles and their hands because you couldn't sit out in your yard to have a garden party because the mosquitoes would literally carry you off. Oh, my gosh. I mean, so, imagine on acetate. You know how when you're oh on yeah, acetate sure. and, and you just get swarmed like that. Right. So, yeah. I mean, the beaches were not places to be. 
1920 and 30. Uh, and the Mosquito Control Commission was formed about that time, just before the CCC uh, began. And the two kind of coincided to allow us to m- control our mosquitoes. The CCC provided the labor. Delaware was smart enough. They didn't have a national park to qualify for CCC money in the first right. go-round. But in the second go-round, they said, whoops, we, we, can, we can do this. We can, we can get our senators together and we'll, we'll, we'll get this money for the Delaware Mosquito Control Commission. So it sounds like we have poultry. There were the CCC component. There was the art. There was your parents. A love story. A love story. So there's sort of kind of a lot of stuff happening in there. Can you tell us a a little bit about your writing process, the amount of research, like how you pulled all those things together in a way that was pretty efficient, pretty succinct, and kind of kind of pull you know the. at no point in the novel do you get kind of bogged down in one thing or the other. So you're able to kind of teach and we kind of teach and move at the same time. Right. It really is a novel. And I wanted, I think people, if there's a good, strong storyline, people will absorb the history better than if you just talk about a building or a place. If you can right. relate it to people's, the book is about resilient hearts in the Great Depression and how the human spirit can survive bad times. And, uh, you know, it's that story from the childhood. I wanted to tell the story about what my parents meant by terrible times. And it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was a sweeter, slower time. But that was not to say that it was stress-free. It was very stressful. You know, Hitler was marching through Europe, taking over countries. People didn't know where their lives were going. And that's evident throughout the story. My dad had 12 different selective service cards, you know, that he had to carry with him at all times. And once the war got underway, before that, he was in the CCC. He didn't know where he was going to be sent. Right. So everybody's lives, not just his we're in upheaval. So uh, I wanted to to write a story that would tell that piece of history about, because I think we can learn a lot from that today, uh, how we deal, deal with trauma in our lives and uh, how you can be brave in the face of unknown uh, things that affect your life. So when we were talking earlier um, about about the chicken houses, you were you were involved with the historical society before you undertook this research. About the same time. And, about and the same time. So so the research was done. Did you do a lot in the historical society, or was that did uh, you go to Dover a lot? Or uh, I re- yeah, the state archives was a good resource. But you got to remember, my dad ended up as a high school history teacher. He loved history. He always was a historian at heart. So even while he was in high school, he was collecting stuff, putting it into that scrapbook. I ah. had I had three scrapbooks that are huge, that are full of original documents that I could. That, that I'd never seen while he was alive. I wish I had found them while he was alive so I could have asked. Right. But I had uh, uh, letters from uh, Colonel Grant, who was Ulysses S. Grant, grandson, who my dad worked with at Fort DuPont. I had their letters. I had letters from Idaho in that camp. Uh, uh, the, the colleagues in the CCC, every, everybody in the book is a real person in some way. Mm-hmm. Now, they may not have done exactly what they do in the book, but the, every, 
every scene in the book is entirely representative of, I'm convinced, of Delaware in, in the 30s. Oh, no, I was just going to, um, I wanted to kind of s- switch gears um, for just a second because there was a thought that's been kind of going in my mind as you've been talking. But when we, um, so we did, so Saltwater Media did a, re- a reprint, a second edition of your first novel, uh-huh. Come Back to Bethany, which was f- geared towards young girls and, you know, kind of teaching them the history and the ecology of Bethany Beach. And then um, later, we, you know, you came back with Chickens and Mosquitoes, which is, you know, geared more adult themes, more, you know, towards an adult audience. So I was thinking like, was, how did you, was that transition easy for you to, to move between writing for, you know, younger teenage girls and then, you know, moving more to this or did it just kind of, they kind of came organically to you and you, they just. I think it's all incumbent upon what story you want to tell. Okay. And the Bethany Beach story was my first book and it was more simplistic and because I had just come out of teaching, I kind of wanted to orient it to kids. Sure. And I hoped that I would get it into the Delaware schools. I'm not sure that has happened as much as I wanted. But uh, old people seem to like it, too, <laughs> <laughs> even though it's a very simple book. Uh, but I think it teach there's – there's, uh, you know, and we've kind of talked about this with other, you know, young adult fiction. If there's a – there's turning points uh, – not turning points. There's teaching points, teaching moments. Right. There are – um, things to be learned. And there are things that, you know, as an adult, when I read something, even though that may be geared towards a younger person, I can relate because at one point I was a young teenage you can get girl things out of them still. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I can still grab some and things it's amazing it. how many people will pick up a little book as opposed to a bigger book. You know, they just, they just have time for a quick read and not that it's necessarily a quick read, but they're interested in the book touches on like the seashells and the sea life and the horseshoe crab and things that are typically coastal Delaware or coastal, I should say, mid-Atlantic. So if you're interested in that, in, in marine life at all, and in the founding of the coastal towns, which generally along this part of the mid-Atlantic area were founded by uh, religious sects that wanted a place to get away in the summer. If you're interested in that history, then you'll read the little book, even though it's a little book. Sure. Actually, I wanted to ask about that because I was just at, I guess it must be Carrie's Camp. Yes. Because it's on Carrie's Camp Road. And I was, I, I, I get lost half on purpose when I go play, play. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes. Have you well, I've, and chickens, I've not noticed it before. And chickens and mosquitoes, the farm family, Cora... And Carolyn, the main woman in the book, go to Carrie's camp for a camp revival meeting. Do, do they still use that or is yes, that a museum they, now? No, it is a museum, but it, there is a two-week period every summer when they reopen Carrie's camp and the church connected to it and other churches go. To and they Carey's have like an old-timey revival out in the Yes, sun. they actually stay in the cottages. They have families that live there for the two-week period. Wow. And you have to be connected to get one of those cottages. And they have uh, a festival. It's like a religious, social, fun thing to do for two weeks out of the summer. Well, I know in, um, in, in kind of talking about 
the way things were and what things still are. Um, when you first sat down, you, you were showing me that um, the current edition of Delaware Beach Life actually has an eight-page spread on uh, chickens and mosquitoes where they feature three different excerpts. Oh, wow. That's yes. awesome. So, yeah, we'll make, we'll make sure we have a, a link to that on, on the page, the uh, Delaware Beach Life article. But one of, the thing, one of the first things when you open that spread is there's a picture of, was it Ocean View? or It's a picture it's, of Indian River. Indian River, okay. And Oak Orchard. Oak Orchard. Yeah, and sort of like early 1930s, and there's these people just kind of hanging out, and you were saying that there was like a dance hall and a carousel out yeah, on this pier. Uh, yeah, Oak Orchard is a big part of Chickens and Mosquitoes because it's the place where my parents fell in love. And historically, since the middle 1850s, there was an event called Big Thursday, which happened... Uh, in August every year at the beginning of the oyster season. And everybody would go to Oak Orchard on Indian River, just upstream from the Indian River Inlet Bridge, if you know where that is now. Yep. And they would have a big festival on that Thursday. And people would come to celebrate the beginning of the oyster season because oysters were big in Delaware. It was a big right, industry. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And they would pay their taxes then, their county taxes. And they would come and they would swim and they would eat and it would be like a family reunion. So Carolyn and Jim go to Big Thursday. Uh, that event actually lasted up until 1960, although in the late 40s it kind of Fell 40s off. and 50, it petered out. But in the 30s, Oak Orchard and the Inland Bays were the place to be, not the beaches. Ocean City, Bethany, they weren't there. Okay. Uh, people went to Oak Orchard because they had piers, they had a dance hall, they had a bathhouse, they had a carousel, you know, a merry go round oh, awesome. out yeah. on a pier. And it was just a happening place. That was where the action was. And if you were African-American, they had a huge resort called Rosedale Beach, just upstream from Oak Orchard. And every great black jazz musician, all of them, you know, were there. And they would leave Chicago. They would leave New York City. Uh and they would go to Rosedale Beach, where they had a three-story hotel, a campground, and it was for blacks only because it was a segregated society. Right, yeah. sure. And so the music there on a, on a weekend night would rival anything in Chicago or New York. So names like Duke Ellington? Louis Armstrong. Louis Armstrong. Yeah, Aretha Franklin. It really thrived until the storm of 62 took out the pier, took out everything. But in the thirties and forties and even early fifties, Rosedale beach was a wonderful happening place. And nobody really knows that piece of history. So Delaware beach life included that part of the book that includes the chapter where they go to Rosedale beach on a Saturday night and listen to the jazz music, not on shore, but out in the water. So they'd be on boats. On boats, yes. On a boat. The white folks on the boats. Listening to Louis Armstrong. Uh Uh-huh. Man. Just, I feel like I'm just, I'm too late. Yeah, you, we, it's one of those things we missed out on. I totally missed it. (laughs) As, uh, as we get ready to kind of pull into the station here at the end, the last thing we always like to talk about is, uh, the marketing effort, like how, how you got your, how you got the word out there. How did you get into Delaware Beach Life? And what are some of the different things that you do to try to get people, in touch with your book to let people know besides going on, you know, world famous podcasts to let people know that your book is there. What are, what were some of your early marketing things and how that kind of changed over the years? Well, you know, it's just kind of happened. I have to say, I'm not, 
a very good marketer. But the story, Chickasaw Mosquitoes is such a good story that once people read it, they tell their friends and they tell their friends and WBOC heard about the book and they came and did a wonderful five-minute segment on me and the book and then uh, Delaware Beach Life heard about it. The local historical societies are asking me to come and speak. Last month I did a presentation to the AARP, which was a big group uh, at Cripple Creek. Uh, I have three or four more groups coming up uh, in the future. So it's just talking to book groups, uh, word now, do of they, mouth. Do they approach you or do you approach them and say, hey, I'd like to come out and speak? They approach you? me because, really, that's awesome. you know, yeah. I'm a grandmother with grandkids and I do a lot of other stuff besides write books. And right. like I said, I'm president of the Ocean View Historical Society. We do other things. We've got Ocean View Homecoming coming up in a couple weeks. So I have to admit, I'm not as young as some of your other authors that really are launching their careers. This was an afterthought for me. Right. Uh, but I'm a historian at heart. Like, you know, like my dad, I'm a chip off the old block. So uh, if there's a good history story out there, you know, I'll, I'm enticed by it. And and also the there are several, there's a bookstores that are carrying, uh, there's bookstores in Lewis and in Bethany that, that carry your work oh, as well. Oh, absolutely, yes. I, I did market the book, to, to both my books. Bethany Beach Books has been wonderful. The they're, lo- they're good folks over there. Yeah, absolutely. and Browse About Books in Rehoboth. Biblion Books in Lewis is very interested in the mosquito control part of this book and sold a lot up there. Uh, and then... Uh, um, Made by Hand and uh, Carolina Street and in uh, Fenwick, you know, uh, sure. people have come to me and and wanted to sell the book. So, and very cool. Now, do you have anything else coming up? Do you have any anything else um, uh, lined up that you're working on? Not at the moment. No, uh-huh. no. It's going to have to be a really good story for me to tell it. And I'm not saying that it won't happen, but you know. Now, in your capacity at the Historical Society, you have a lot of people come through. Do you give them – are you able to give them directions say, oh, well, if you need to know about this, then you may want to also know about that? Well, we try to tell the story of – the historical story of Ocean View, which is pretty rich, and the surrounding area. Uh, you know, we don't want to infringe on the Lewis Historical Society of the Rehoboth, but – uh, we do our own thing. We had, we just have fun. We're a small group of people that yeah. that like to do crazy things, and uh, we we are open every. Uh, our complex is open between Memorial Day and Labor Day every Wednesday afternoon, and we take uh, people through our buildings and talk about local history. And then we have other events. For instance, the end of April, we're doing an event at Perucci's Restaurant in Ocean View. And for 43, the first 43 people who sign up, we have a luncheon and we talk about the historical significance of that building. It's a, the restaurant's located in a, in a building that's, oh, that's been there cool. since so it's, the 30s. It's kind of like, it's kind of like a history taste. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's called a history mix in ah, fact. And, right. and so we, we, we sit in a place and we have a social event. Our first one was at the cafe on 26, which is the home of, was the home of Cecil and Wilmer Steele. Right. And we had a cocktail party there and. The people that wanted to stayed for dinner, but with the cocktail party, we talked about Cecil and Wilmer and what they meant for the Ocean View area and all the businesses that sprang off of the uh, raising chickens, you know, the bags, mm-hmm. the feed, the crates, the tra- the trucking. There were 
huge right. industry. Yeah, yeah. Any, any big industry has all the right. all these ancillary, and that's covered that in the book. That, in fact, I got the real names back in those early those early buyers and the early growers. I got many of those names into the book. Well, that's fantastic. Excellent. Well, um, last but not least, where can we find you? Do you have a website places can people can they find can you? They can reach me at my email. I don't have a specific website set aside for my books. I'm sorry. but nope, that's CK, okay with me. Yeah, the, my book has the, my website on the back. CKSaras at AOL.com is my email. Yep, and we'll make sure we have a link to that on the podcast page. And also, we've already mentioned your books are available in several bookstores, but they're also available on uh, saltwatermedia.com. And Amazon, of course. Amazon and, as well. Uh, uh, Barnes and Noble. Barnes and Noble.com as yeah. well. And uh, you can actually, if you want to pick up a copy here at Saltwater Media here in Berlin, you can do that too. Very cool. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks. It was fun talking to both of you again. Well, thanks, Carol. So What's Your Story was recorded at Saltwater Media, an indie book publisher in Berlin, Maryland. To hear more behind-the-story stories, visit us at www.saltwatermedia.com. Want to hear more? Just subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Want other people to hear more? Give us a great review on iTunes. Tell your story.